there's a weekly art meeting, and all the cartoonists, we call it the batch. We submit a group of six, eight, ten cartoons every week, and then they either buy something at one drawing or they don't. Every blue moon you might sell two, but often enough you don't sell any. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with some of the world's most creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. And now, some of those interviews appear in print in Debbie's brand new book, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People. It's coming out in February of this year. In anticipation of the book, we're releasing interviews from the archives this month. We thought it would be fun for listeners to hear not only some great interviews, but also to hear how the podcast has evolved over the years. So we've been releasing the oldest ones first and proceeding chronologically. In January of 2016, Debbie spoke with cartoonist Roz Chast. You know, I don't bound out of bed thinking, this is just another great day in my endless great life. Ross Chast, after the break. Of all the cartoonists whose work appears in the New Yorker magazine, who's your favorite? Well, the competition there is very stiff, but for me, the one who really gets to me is Roz Chast. Not just her jokes, but her characters, her famously frumpy, Jewishy, existentially awkward neurotics. Her work appears mainly in The New Yorker, but also in other magazines and in books. One of her latest is a memoir in cartoon form, a graphic novel titled Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? And among many, many other things, it is about her aging parents. Roz Chast, welcome to Design Matters. Hello. <laughs> Roz, let's begin back in 1940, when an overhead light bulb in your parents' apartment burned out, and in many ways your family story begins then. Can you share the story of the bulb and your almost sister? This is a story that, of course, I was not there for, but... Um, <laughs> Far younger than Younger, that. yeah. <laughs> but it was a story that I heard repeated many times because I think it had a lot of meaning for both of my parents. My father was... I have a lot of phobias, but he is sort of my phobias to the next exponential power. <laughs> and one of his many phobias was changing light bulbs and also getting up on a ladder. And some high light bulb burned out. And my mother, who was pregnant at the time with my almost sister, climbed up on the ladder to change this light bulb because he could do neither of those things. And she hemorrhaged and lost the baby. I was told the story several times. I've also been told by various doctors that there was no way that climbing up on a ladder and changing a light bulb causes you to lose a baby. But so there was no correlation? There was no correlation whatsoever. The baby lived for a couple of days, and she was about seven and a half months pregnant. So it was pretty traumatic. My mother almost died. Really nothing good 
came out of it <laughs> at all. I think it was pretty horrible for both of them, and they didn't want to have another child for a very, very long time. They waited for almost 15 years to have me, by which point they were considerably older than most people's parents back then. You know, they and you had, were made fun of because of that. It wasn't simple making fun. It was like making fun plus the terror of being told by your schoolmates, like not only are your parents old, but that means that they're going to die really soon, which I sort of kind of had guessed anyway. But this was like, no, you're actually not wrong about that. But they were because they lived for a very long time. Your mother lived until she was 97 years old. Yes, she did. She did. In your spectacular memoir, Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant, you detail how or where you were growing up in Brooklyn that your parents had tough lives, way, way tougher than yours. You describe and draw the stories about how their parents had come over from Russia at the turn of the century with nothing. And about how bitter and angry your family members were, how your grandmother washed other people's clothes, how your father's mother was the only one of her siblings to survive the Russian cholera epidemic. I didn't even know there was one. And how her father's throat got cut from ear to ear in a forest of bandits. And how she ended up having her one child, your dad, by Caesarian section in 1912 in a horrible ordeal which involved, according to your mother, opening her up from her neck to her you-know-what. Roz, how much of these stories do you think were actually true? I think that they were actually pretty true. I mean, the bandits no, I did, in the forest? Well, yeah, the bandits in the forest, I'm sure that was true. love the word true. bandit. Oh, I know, I know. I mean, the word bandit, you don't hear it enough, no. you know? But that is true, that he was murdered by bandits. And I thought, my mother is making this up. There was no cholera epidemic. There was. There was. There was a cholera epidemic in Russia. I think the thing that made it unusual for me is that they were first-generation Americans, and my parents had barely assimilated, whereas most people who grew up in the 50s and the 60s, their parents, like my husband's parents, I see photos and they look like people out of Mad Men, you know, <laughs> with like pedal pushers and they're playing golf and they're playing tennis and they're happy. You know, I look at my family album, they all look like, you know, the Gestapo is about to come and kick the doors in and they look depressed and anxious. I mean, they're wearing babushkas. Even though my husband is slightly older than I am, his upbringing was with parents who were much more assimilated and younger and more normal, I think. Your parents referred to each other without any irony as soulmates. They were married for 69 years. When you suggested that they were codependent, their response was, thank God, of course we're codependent. And you detail how they believed that if they just held on to each other really, really tightly for eternity, nothing would ever change. Do you think that that was a good thing or a bad thing for them? I think it was probably both. I mean, for me to get out of bed in the morning, I have to be in a certain amount of denial. You know, I think that's probably true for a lot of people. You know, I don't bound out of bed thinking, this is just another great day in my endless great life. From the time you're maybe three or four years old on, you know that you're going to die. And so there is this kind of hulking thing down there, back there. And so my parents were very, 
good at denial. And yet, if they didn't have that strength, you know, they probably would not have been able to get out of bed or do whatever. That's what we all need to do. I, too, was brought up in Brooklyn. I come from Eastern European Jews, um, very Russian-Romanian. I'm convinced I come from gypsies. <laughs> you grew up the only child of an assistant principal and a high school teacher in Flatbush, a neighborhood in Brooklyn, and you describe Flatbush as such. Not the Brooklyn of artists or hipsters or people who made and bought $8 chocolate bars. This was deep Brooklyn, the Brooklyn of people who have been left behind by everything and everyone, the Brooklyn of smelly hallways and neighbors having screaming fights, and where no one went into Manhattan, the city, unless it was for their job at Drudgery, Inc., <laughs> Which is so wonderful. Um, I grew up, uh, my first couple of years in, in of life were in Borough Park. Um, and so I Borough come Park. from... Oh, yeah. 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 Ha, and that's enormous, even though I wasn't even conscious of living there and to have very, very few, if any, real memories of, of being there beyond seeing myself in pictures, it enormously shaped me in probably every way. When did you move out? When I was two, but, oh, but oh, we moved oh. to Queens, oh, so you know oh, it was just, yeah. and then Staten Island, so it was sort of <laughs> right. just you know moving from borough to borough. Yeah, yeah. Um, but how did living in Brooklyn? How much do you feel like that shaped or influenced you? Well, one thing about Brooklyn is that it's really, really big, and so when people think of like Brooklyn, the brand, which is so disgusting to sort of like turn it into a brand, they're thinking of these sort of limited areas that have been colonized by you know young people with some spending money or whatever. Carroll Gardens, Park Slope, right, Brooklyn right, Heights. Right. And they're great, but Brooklyn is really, really big, and there's areas that that doesn't touch. And when I was growing up, everybody that I knew wanted to get out. It was kind of awful. It was I, kind of depressing. It was depressing. I do not have nostalgic memories of it at all. I remember an uncle saying to me when I was growing up, Oh, so you think the world owes you a living. You know, and a lot of people with that kind of attitude that if you thought, well, I'd like a sort of not so grim life for myself, it would be like, oh, well, you must think you're like queen of the hill, you know. Yeah. I don't know. I just wanted to get out. How do you feel about Brooklyn now that you're gone? There's parts of it that are beautiful. It's not really for me. I think I've aged out of it. And also, I see the ghosts behind that, like, really cool art gallery where somebody made things out of pipes and, like, toothpicks. I see the ghost at that horrible grocery store that, you know, my mother used to drag me to that had the smells and the moldering meats in the case. So I don't have, like, a nostalgia thing for it. You created a to-do list of your childhood and adolescence, and it reads as follows. Do well in school. Practice piano, avoid contact with other children, be good, look up symptom in Merck Manual, do not die. <laughs> yeah, I think that would pretty much sum it up. <laughs> my question really was, really? Yeah, <laughs> that was yeah really. That was uh, my parents. I think they did not want me to play with most other children because they were school teachers. My mother was an assistant principal, had been a school teacher. And I think in a certain way they wanted me to get out of Brooklyn. When I would have friends that had Brooklyn accents, this would drive my mother especially just absolutely bonkers. You know, she could not tolerate it. And I had this friend who lived in the building, and she would come downstairs and go, Roz, you want to go to the store with me? And it was this real, and my mother just hated that girl because of her accent. There was also the posture problem. She had bad posture, but the accent was what, you know. <laughs> I think that my parents thought if they were going to get me out of Brooklyn, 
they did not want me to be, you know, they didn't want want you to be Brooklynized. Yeah, and I have cousins that talk. And my husband, he he can tell when I'm talking to my cousin on the phone because he says, suddenly you're talking like this. Hi, how are you? What's What's new? new? (laughs) Right, right, exactly, exactly. Like, how's your mother? You know, oh, oh, she has a cold. Oh, that's too bad. In, In an article in the New York Times, I read that you were... The blank slate for your father's crippling fears <laughs> and for your mother's rage. Your mother was so aware of the effect of her anger that she referred to it as a blast from chast. Both you and your dad were terrified of the times when she warned, I'm going to blow my top, because she kind of did. Yeah. Um, did you ever figure out how to manage her anger? Well, you know, I think you become a cartoonist, <laughs> a cartoonist <laughs> or a comedian or something. No, you know, I never did. She was very formidable and she was scary. You stated that you don't have your mother's gift of terrorizing anybody. I wish I did. How do you manage when people frustrate you or annoy you or aside from writing about them in comics? I usually blame myself. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know yeah, how of it course, goes. It's your it's fault. Like, Absolutely. Yeah, like if I hadn't done that, then they wouldn't have been mad at me and they were probably right. When you were a kid, you subscribed to a magazine called Highlights for Children. Not my choice. (laughs) Oh, see, I loved Highlights. I mean, I didn't say to my parents, can I subscribe to Highlights? It was something that was sort of considered to be, I guess, quasi-educational. Yeah, it was part of a rite of passage in our clearly similar Jewish Brooklyn lives. (laughs) Yes. Do you remember our own page? Of course. Yes. And the Weekly Reader. I mean, I live for those things. The Weekly Reader I didn't like because it was current events, and that was more like vegetables or something. But but I liked, uh, you know, Goofus and Gallant. Of course, uh, you've written about them substantially. Yeah, it was kind of like my own heaven and hell. There was the timber toes and the find the hidden pictures. Yeah, yeah I like that. I like so that. wonderful. Is that what motivated you to first start drawing? No, I think it was really being the only child of two older parents who did not know what to do with me. And when I would go out with them, I mean, I drew from the time I was very, very little because they would give me paper and pencils and then I could be occupied and they could talk or do whatever they needed to do. And so the encouraging of your drawing, did they understand that you had this exceptional talent from very early on? What was your sense of how they felt about what you were doing? I think that they thought I would probably be a teacher because that's what they did. And that was the world that they knew. And the idea of being an artist for a living was just totally bizarre to them. I was wondering, as I was reading your memoir, if they had aspirations for you to be a lawyer or a doctor or some sort of professional where they knew you'd be making a lot of money. No, I don't remember pressure about that. I think that they knew either consciously or subconsciously that much as having a doctor for a a child would be, you know, a real feather in their cap, math and I were not good friends. So that was probably We're enemies. Yeah, yeah, that was not going to happen. So I think they kind of knew that. And they didn't really know that many lawyers. They did know some doctors. They weren't horrified when you told them you wanted to study art or painting or any of the things that you ended up studying. I think that they honestly thought that eventually I would become maybe an art teacher. I think that for a very long time, the idea that I would be an art teacher was the way that they sort of managed whatever anxiety they were feeling about it. There's a video about you on the New Yorker website wherein you talk about how when you were in the first grade, you drew feet in a certain way, and then you saw that a girl in your class drew feet 
in a different way. And you talk about how you think about that a lot and how somebody doing something in a way that you never thought of before can teach you so much. And I had a very similar experience in first grade as well. Um, I drew grass in a certain way. And a much prettier girl named Kathy drew grass in a much nicer way. I'm not sure that I learned anything, but I know I felt jealous that not only was she prettier than I was, but she could also draw better than I could. <laughs> mm, that's very frustrating. No, I just stole it. <laughs> I didn't even care. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, all right, I, I'm taking those shoes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it like that because she had an older sister, and I think that was what it was. She had probably learned from her older sister that you don't draw feet pointing out to the side like Charlie Chaplin. There's this way of making them appear almost 3D. You just kind of make them face forward and then you do this kind of, you know, 3D box kind of thing. And it worked. Your parents subscribed to The New Yorker magazine. When did you first start reading their issues? Oh, God, I can't remember. It was just always there, and I would look at the cartoons. And uh... and it was an expensive magazine, so it had to be a real intention that they read it and had a subscription to it. Yeah. I mean, they yeah. were very frugal people. So. Yeah, but they read Saturday Review. We subscribed to uh, Saturday Review, to Newsweek, not Time magazine because Newsweek was more liberal, and my parents were definitely politically liberal. Time was for dodo head Nixon voters and stuff. <laughs> uh, and we subscribed to Look because, again, of that course. was more liberal yeah. than Life. I think that magazines were definitely a part of my life growing up. Did I you pour over the cartoons? And I, how did they influence you? I didn't pour over them. I mean, I never really thought I was going to be a cartoonist or The New Yorker. I read them. I discovered Charles Adams when I was about eight or nine, and not through The New Yorker, through uh, my parents used to go with a group of mostly childless Brooklyn school teachers to Cornell University in the summer. And I'm not quite sure why it was Cornell. There were, it was the Finger Lakes. There were parks. It was very pretty. And they would rent uh, graduate student housing. It was very cheap. There were always these cultural activities during the day for my parents and their friends to go to. There were concerts. There were lectures. There was this. There was that. And when they would go to these activities, they would park me. There was a browsing library in the student center. And one section of it was cartoon books. And within this cartoon section, there was the Charles Adams section, and I was obsessed with those. Monster Rally, Black Mariah, Drawn and Quartered, Adams and Evil. I loved them so much. I could just look at them again and again and, you know, laugh and laugh. Just loved it. You first attended Kirkland College and then transferred to the Rhode Island School of Design, where you received a BFA in painting in 1977. What made you decide to study painting? I was living with painters, a <laughs> really good reason. And I'd always drawn cartoons, I mean, from the time I was about 12 or 13. But art school, when I was going to art school, cartoons were not thought of as anything worthwhile. I felt very sort of like, this sucks. Like, I suck. Cartoons suck. Oh. It all just really sucks. You know, my daughter went to SVA, and she loved it. And she did not go through that kind of institutional hazing that I feel like when I was at RISD, it was very much a part of it. I think for some people, maybe they went and they bonded with teachers or they got praise or whatever. But for me, and I think there were other people, like, you just come in and you think, I 
a cartoonist. I'm going to draw, and I have this style that I like to draw, and I'm pretty good. And then they just break you down. By the time I was a senior, I like didn't want to draw cartoons. The people who were getting the attention and the praise were these people who would do these videos that were really all static, conceptual artists also. And drawing cartoons, it was like almost gauche. You're drawing representationally. You're drawing to make people laugh. This is like gaucherie upon gaucherie. And it was not good. But I was living with painters, and I loved listening to them talk about art and about painting. And I, and I learned a lot about painting and about art history, and, and I loved it. And I thought, well, maybe if I just kind of will myself into this, I'll become a painter, because I loved color. But I missed cartooning, and finally by my senior year, it was like, I'm going to paint, and I'll get whatever grades I need to do. But secretly, I had reverted to drawing cartoons. And when you graduated, then was there a decision, I want to be a cartoonist? It was not even wanting. This is what I did. It is what it is. Yeah, this is how I draw. This is what I do, and it's what I did before I went to RISD, and it's what I'm going to do when I get out of RISD. And that kind of hazing, in some ways, it was horrible to go through it. But on the other hand, you learn that you can be broken down in that way and you can still put yourself back together. And you know what you love. You know what you love, yeah. Your first cartoons were published in Christopher Street and The Village Voice. And I remember seeing your work in The Voice as that was the primary newspaper I read back then. Yeah. And was first captivated by your humor and your line. How did you first get those jobs? I just called them up and I brought a portfolio in. It was different. You went in in person and you met with the art director and you brought in your work and they looked at it. But it was much more personal. In fact, at the Village Voice, I thought if I were lucky, that's where I would wind up drawing cartoons. That's what I wanted to do because uh, Jules Pfeiffer was doing drawings for them and Mark Allen Stamity and Stan Mack. And they were sort of countercultural and alternative. And I thought if I'm very lucky, I can get a gig there. And for the, the New Yorker was just kind of not quite random because there weren't that many places using cartoons, but I never expected to wind up as a cartoonist for The New Yorker, ever, ever, ever. It was not my goal. How did it happen? I called up. I found out when the drop-off day was. I mean, there were not many magazines using cartoons. There was The Voice. There was National Lampoon. There was Playboy, which was even weirder, you know. <laughs> um Hey, I can't really see you drawing no. pornography. No, that would be no, it's not really pornography. I no, mean, it's, it's not pornography. It, but it's more like boobs. when I think of a Playboy gag, it's like somebody who is just quite endowed, like <laughs> boobs, boobs. She's got like you know mega boobs, and she's like running around a desk, and like then this disgusting old guy is chasing her, and she's going, "I got boobs," or he's saying like, "Let me get those boobs," or you know, it's just like I don't even know what the gag is. It's just like she's got boobs, and he wants to get the boobs, and that's the end of the joke. And so I don't think that that was really the good place for me. So I found out the drop-off day at The New Yorker, which was a Wednesday, and I never thought that they would ever take anything. I just dropped them off and went back the next week to pick them up. I took everything I had, probably about 60 cartoons. I just had no idea how to do any of this. I was 23, and I was guessing what to do. And then I went to pick up my portfolio, and um, there was a note from Lee Lorenz, who is the art editor, really, because at that time it was all one thing. And he said to come back and see him. And they bought a cartoon. And I was 
absolutely floored. 1978. 1978. 23 years old, you sell your first cartoon to The New Yorker. Yeah, I was floored. And he said you should start coming back every week and not to just drop them off, but to come in, which I don't think I realized even at the time that that was really good. Good. (laughs) (laughs) It was amazing. According to the New Yorker website, as of March 6th, 2014, you had published 1,267 cartoons in the New Yorker. Do you have any idea what you're up to now? No, it's too many. It's disgusting. Oh, I hardly think the word disgusting is the right word for this, Roz. <laughs> you've, you've stated that you think style is a combination of the way you naturally draw and also bits of pieces of shiny things you take from other people. What kinds of shiny things have you been able to take from other people and integrate into your work? The shoes. <laughs> That's from elementary school. What else? Oh, every, just bits and pieces. Ripping off somebody's entire style is, that's disgusting. I and mean, that is really not cool. But, I mean, I always see things in a painting from 300 years ago. Whatever just sort of seems appealing. A little sparkle of something here or a sparkle of something there. And, you know, you see how that works with what you do. When did you become a staff cartoonist for The New Yorker? At the end of that year. 23, 24 years old, you become a staff cartoonist. Yeah, they offered me a contract. Did that change the way you work at that point or...? No, I mean, I never had an office there. I always worked at home. I still work at home. It's not very different in many ways from what it was then. There's a weekly art meeting, and all the cartoonists, we call it the batch. We submit a group of six, eight, ten cartoons every week, and then they have an art meeting, and then they either buy something at one drawing or they don't. Every blue moon you might sell two, but often enough you don't sell any. And what do you do with the remainder? I pile them into filing cabinets or on top of the filing cabinets, or sometimes I rework them and I resubmit them. I put them in books. There were a lot of cartoons in the memoir that I had done as part of my weekly batch before I even thought that I was going to be doing a memoir where I had visited my parents, and I see that they have this oven mitt which is ancient. It was probably the 15-year-old oven mitt that was not only burnt and soiled and disgusting, but my mother had patched it. Who patches an oven mitt, you know? (laughs) Same woman who makes a bathrobe out of towels. Yes, exactly, exactly. (laughs) The stories in your book, it's just extraordinary how she did these things. Oh, yeah. It was the depression. It wasn't just that she grew up, you know, in poverty or near poverty. She also graduated from college in 1932, right into the depression, and they had to keep track of every penny. There were all those little poems like, you know, Use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. That kind of thing, where you save all the slivers of soap. Right, and she used to put them like in a little... In a washcloth. Yeah. Because she made her own soap thing out of an old washcloth, and it was so vile. And when you got her a new bathrobe after you saw that her bathrobe was made up of washcloths that I believe she took from hotels, is that correct? Yeah. Then you worried that somehow... If she wore the new bathrobe that you gave her, that she would die in it. 
Yes, because it was too heavy. It was too luxurious. And that somehow it would leave like crack or frail bones. <laughs> like the headline of, you know, or maybe not a headline, but like some like sub article in the back of the Times and maybe in the Metropolitan section. Elderly woman dies from weight of luxury bathrobe given by her thoughtless daughter. Cartoonist you know? kills mother. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Story at five. Yeah, that would be the post. <laughs> Your first cover for The New Yorker was on August 4th, 1986, and it featured a lecturer in a white coat pointing to a family tree of ice cream. How do you create covers for The New Yorker? How were they chosen? That particular one I had done as a cartoon, and Lee asked me to do it as a cover. So it varies. Right now, they've gotten much more topical, the covers. And so they have people that they go to, like, I think, you know, can you do a cover, something about this or about that, about Governor Christie or whatever. Global warming. Yeah, global warming. This is a big topic right now. My stuff is not quite as current events driven. It's daily events driven. It's daily moments, moments in time. Yes. How different is it to sustain a cartoon narrative over the journey of a book versus an individual panel of a cartoon? Well, an individual cartoon, there's a lot of editing. You know, that's about boiling the joke down to a sort of essential thing and cutting out what is detracting from the joke. But with a memoir, it's different. You know, there's jokes in it, but it's also the telling of a story. So not every second is joke, joke, joke. It would be exhausting and sort of pointless. In your book, and I'm going to say the title again for anybody that didn't get it the previous times, Kent, we talk about something more pleasant. You describe how in 1990, your husband, your three-year-old son, and you, pregnant with your soon-to-be-born daughter, moved out of the city to the suburbs of Connecticut, where there was more space and greenery and good public schools in your state. If doing right by our kids meant abandoning my then 78-year-old parents, so be it. The longer we were there, the more impossible schlepping into Brooklyn seemed. If they wanted to see us so damn much, let them make the trip. And there's a little drawing of you and your increasingly elderly parents with tiny little suitcases standing in the big snow of Connecticut. And you didn't return to Brooklyn again for 13 years. 13 years, Brooklyn free. What was that like for you? I guess there was a lot of uh, denial. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, Yikes. Um, Yeah, kind of weird, I guess. Do you go back now? I go into Brooklyn for this or that, but not to see my parents because they're not there anymore. Yeah, well, my kids were both very little, and I was busy with work, and I was busy with raising two little kids, and um, the years just kind of passed. And my parents would come up and visit. You know, when I look back, I think, boy, well, okay. (laughs) Uh, But they might have wanted to come to you because it was a bigger house and there was more room and the kids were more comfortable. Yeah, there was that. There were definitely, you know, reasons. Um, Oh, well. (laughs) (laughs) So Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant was not only a number one New York Times bestseller. It was also a National Book Award finalist. And in an interview on the National Book website, you were asked if writing the book was cathartic. And you state, for me, it was a way of remembering, not really catharsis. To me, catharsis is you kind of get rid of it. And I wanted to remember it. I wanted to remember my parents, remember what they sounded like and what the experience was like. And in the book, you state you weren't 
great as a caretaker, and they weren't great at being taken care of. But yet, as reluctant as you were, Roz, you really did take care of them. I mean, you did a remarkable job of taking care of them. Do you feel that no matter what you would have done, it would not have been enough? Our relationship, especially my relationship with my mother, was complicated enough that the problems probably went far beyond my ability or inability to take care of them from the time they were, you know, 85 on or 80 on, that I would have had to have had a completely different relationship with them from the time I was little, probably. So, yeah. You finally decide that they have to leave Brooklyn. You need to put them in what you referred to as the place. Yeah. Can you describe the place for our listeners? Things were happening. There was like a sort of decline and things were getting sort of scary and my they were mom, falling a lot they were they very were, ill yeah they were falling my father had seen all dementia it was getting kind of bad i was actually afraid that my father was going to leave the stove on and they were going to like burn up the apartment house or whatever i mean i just thought like something really really bad is going to happen they were not hardly even leaving the apartment at that point because my mother was very very weak and um They finally admitted that it was time. And so anyway, this place was not far from me, about a 10, 15-minute drive, if that. It's an assisted living place. It was very pretty. It was very nice. But it's an institution. It's a place. I just wish there were a better way of dealing with this since it's not abstract. It's not like, oh, well, my parents, you know, they had this weird condition that, like, I'm not going to suffer from. No, they just got really old. And, you know, we're all going to get to that point where it becomes very difficult to manage. And I think about it. I think about it more and more. Has it changed how you feel about aging? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. And are you more worried about it now, or are you... Yeah, I'm more worried about it, but I think that I'm just more aware of it. I'm more aware of old people I see on the street, you know, or on the subway. It's funny, you know, I was on the... I came down here by the train, and I don't know whether it was just I was holding this, like, really enormous, heavy bag, but this young man offered me a seat, and part of me was like, oh, what a nice young man, but then another part of me was like, do I look that bad? Do I look that old to you? <laughs> Do I look like I'm like 90 or something? You know, and I and I declined, you know, as politely as I possibly could. It's like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And, you know, made like a little bit of an old lady thank you face. Um, but, <laughs> but it was definitely odd. You've talked about how terrifying it is that our instinct to cling to life is as strong as it is. And your mother hung on for two years after your father died, as if she were, as you put it, hell-bent on never leaving the earth. And did her stubbornness to stay alive impact how you feel about living now? Ah, God. I think that the same way when you're a child, you can't imagine what it's like to be an adult or a teenager even. You can only see like a few years ahead, and then after that, it's kind of blurry. I hate the idea that I would be so hell-bent on that. I mean, she was as stubborn as she was dying as she was every day she was alive. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you don't know. You don't know how you're going to feel when you get there. The place was very, very expensive, and you describe how it cost $14,000 a month. 
and you imagined that you could have had that money and then you thought you were the most disgusting person in the world for even thinking that. And that's one of the most remarkable things about your book, Roz, even when you feel like you're being disgusting. We can relate. I think that everyone has these feelings and everyone has conflicts about how they feel about their parents at any given time. And I think it's really hard for grown kids to be in a position of having no choice but to take care of their parents when they have conflict about how they were taken care of as kids. And that's one of the other things that I think is so remarkable about your work. Even when you describe things that are probably less than noble, you do it in a way that makes you feel noble for even living. Well, I don't feel like it was very noble. I also feel that it wasn't completely my fault for feeling like that. One thing that was so shocking to me was there's just no support network at all for any of this. And they were things like my parents had insurance um, in Brooklyn, <laughs> in right? Brooklyn, but it in New York. Transfer. It did That's not transfer terrible. to Connecticut, and and the amount of money that these places charge is so enormous. And you don't feel I did not feel that the people working for them were getting that much of the money. I think it went. I don't know whether it was the stockholders or or the people who were like the CEOs of this company. I mean, it was just, there was a comedy to it. There was a real black comedy because this is a person who, you know, I think of the cheese tainer, you know, in the refrigerator, which was from, you know, my junior high. It was a plastic bin in which my mother kept the cheese in the refrigerator. She called it a cheese tainer. And a normal person, once that plastic bin cracks, you take it, you throw it the fuck away. You don't patch it with masking tape, and then you patch more masking tape on top of the masking tape. So there's, like, ancient masking tape, and then there's, like, Middle Ages masking tape, and then there's, like, the modern age masking tape. There's, like, several archaeological layers of, of tape. <laughs> it becomes a geological it becomes study. A study. It does, yeah. And it's grimy and it's disgusting. So I think about, you know, how much concern they had for their pennies and their nickels and the sadness of just seeing it like a Niagara Falls, <sighs> constantly writing out these checks. And then, you know, finding out that the insurance covered almost none of it. And luckily they saved. They are like penny-pinching ways they had enough money to pay for a very nice place. It's sad, really. It know? is very sad. The images that you include in the book, the photography, you take pictures of the Museum of Chic Razors and the sunglasses. I mean, it's really, really wonderful how you document the various things that your parents kept. Yeah, they did not want to get rid of anything. I think that's so human, though. I mean, it's not just an episode of Hoarders. It's no. really very much about how do you keep things and create things to provide meaning and they end up becoming evidence of life and yeah. it's remarkable. In your book, you have a series of sketches of your mother in the final weeks of her life. In most, if not all, she seems to be sleeping and they're heartbreaking and terrifying and beautiful all at the same time. Um, what was it like for you to draw her in this way? They feel very compassionate, the drawings. I didn't really know what else to do. You know, because she wasn't talking at that point. I didn't know how long it was going to go on. And I do talk in the book about, you know, a sort of final conversation I had with her where I realized I was not going to get any kind of closure. This was not going to be like one of those movies where 
there's this breakthrough and then there's a hug and then the music comes and it's beautiful and no. This was in terms of endearment. <laughs> this was not in terms of endearment. This was not terms of anything. This was terms of like, I'm still me and that's the way it's going to be. And, you know, let's now we go on from here. In the last section of your book, you talk about this moment and that scene of you sobbing in your car um, after that talk with her where you realized you weren't going to get the yeah, happy yeah, ending. Yeah, it's like, haven't you read the script? Right. <laughs> you know, like, don't you know how the scene goes? What happened? Did you not get the memo? <laughs> <laughs> but but you talk about bellowing and the depth of sadness surprised you. And my dad died a few months ago and I experienced something very similar. I had a very, very complicated relationship with him. And when the moment that I found out that he'd passed, that he died, I was en route to seeing him. I also didn't make it the yeah. same way you didn't make it to her final moments. Um, and I experienced something very similar on the road, I, the bellowing. I'd never, ever cried like that. Yeah, ever. yeah, yeah. I hope yeah. I never do again. Yeah. And the combination of feelings is remarkable. It's unbelievable. Um, have you processed a lot of what you were feeling at that time? Does it get better? Uh, I've repressed it. <laughs> you know, process. I mean, you know, you process cheese. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I'm not really okay, good at the enough. things that you're supposed to do, like psychologically, to let go. You draw. You draw. That's you what know. you do. That's all you need to do when you draw like you draw, Roz. Oh, you're very nice. The last thing I want to ask you about is your parrots. You have several. I know you have Jackie have and Eli, right? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. I have two now. Yeah. Um, why parrots? I read that parrots seem to live forever. There's an irony well, to this. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> well, um, I grew up with parakeets, and my husband grew up with parakeets. It was one of the things we wow, bonded over. Wow, that's really, what are the odds of that? I know, I know. And for different reasons. I mean, I was in this apartment. That was the top of the pet chain for me was parakeet and it took a lot of work to go from like goldfish to parakeet it was like a lot of campaigning and I had a friend that had a parakeet and so my parents finally got me a parakeet and birds are great they're beautiful they're intelligent they yours talk they say a lot of words the, the African gray talks a lot yeah and she uses words like if I open up the freezer door she'll go ice cream she associates that sound with getting a little spoonful of vanilla ice cream and at night, like around 11 o'clock, she'll suddenly, I hear her in the bird room, she'll go, good night, good night. That means, you know, it's nighttime. It's time for you to cover me. Get off your butt and get in here and get the cage cover. And the other bird doesn't talk. She's just cute. That's extraordinary. And the images of you with your birds are just euphoric. Yeah, they great. Chaz, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. It is a real honor. I have been a fan of yours for most of my life, most of my adult life. And to have you here is a real honor. Thank you. Thank you, Debbie. You can find out more about Roz Chast and her books and her work on her website, rozchast.com. This is the 11th anniversary of Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Debbie's new book, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People, is coming out in February of 2022. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. Interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Weiland. 